I'm Taylor, and welcome to the TD Nutrition Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the TD Nutrition Podcast. This is the first episode of season two. So since it's been a while since my last episode, I decided that we would just start a new season and that this would be the first episode. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about protein. And if you've been following my podcast for a while, you know that I covered protein previously and I did a very elementary overview of protein and protein and fat and the relationship between the two and why protein's not quite as important as we think it is. And so today's episode is about protein and we are going to talk about protein and fat, yes, but this episode is going to get into more of the nitty gritty of protein and we're going to talk about um, specific like evidence and studies that have come out. Um, And it's going to be a lot heavier than the previous protein episode, I will say. So given that, this is going to be a pretty lengthy episode. I think the last protein episode, I don't know, was maybe like 20 minutes long, somewhere around there. This is definitely going to be significantly longer. So let's get started. People get so defensive about protein, and it really makes me laugh. And I'm I'm seeing that even more now as I post more on social media about facts about protein and carbs and things like that. People get so defensive um, about protein and basically that, yeah, it's the pillar of nutrition and without protein, you know, our health is nothing and all this. And I just kind of laugh because, yeah, we need protein, but it's not the pillar of nutrition the way that we are kind of taught to think about it um, in the little bit of nutritional education that we get in school. Um, We are taught that protein is kind of the foundation of everything and protein, you know, you need to have it with every meal or you're going to be hungry. And and a lot of that is just not true at all. And then even when it comes to like physical fitness, the biggest group of people that really get on me for the protein thing is like fitness trainers. And I have nothing against fitness trainers. I have a lot of close friends who are fitness trainers. They get a very surface level of nutrition and it's pretty much geared toward fitness. And even then, like there's a lot of stuff deep down that it's like, well, even some of that that you learn isn't 100% accurate and I mean I went through a personal training curriculum and I did learn some their their nutrition section and completely different than what I've learned in school and so when I hear certain arguments I'm like oh I know that argument Um, and so again I just I kind of laugh so all of this has kind of made me want to do this more in-depth episode about protein so we do we treat protein like it's the pillar of nutrition And we kind of treat it like it's a cure-all as well. Like if you're not feeling right or you're feeling tired, oh, you need more protein, you're not getting enough protein. And it seems, it really seems that we're all eating more protein, but it doesn't seem that we're all healthier for it. Or even just like as a country as a whole, it seems like, you know, everyone knows that protein is important and that's what we need to get, but we don't seem like we're healthier as a whole for that. And then we just assume, too, that protein fills us up, that protein gives us energy. So how did we come so far from the truth? 
the basics of biochemistry, they will even tell you that energy comes from carbs, not protein. And our addiction to consuming tons of protein is really leading to rises in obesity, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease. And it's also really, really hard to develop protein deficiency. There's no case of protein deficiency in a person that is eating adequate calories. Protein deficiency will only arise when lacking proper caloric intake. So, you know, in poor areas where, you know, there's starvation or, you know, not enough food, yeah, there'll be protein deficiency. But in someone who's eating enough on a day-to-day basis, it's practically impossible to not eat enough protein. So if you're eating enough calories, you're going to get enough protein. If you're not getting enough protein, odds are you're probably not eating enough. And in dozens of randomized control trials, the more protein consumed, especially animal protein, but the more protein consumed, um, the worse participants fared. So it didn't seem like it had any positive impact on their health. Um, And randomized control uh, trials are the best type of study that you could do. Um, And then the USDA shows that meat consumption has risen from 124 pounds per person per year in 1909 to 201.5 pounds per person per year in 2004. That's an increase of 63% in less than five generations. So that's a significant increase. It should not have increased that much in that amount of time. And so simultaneously, while there's this rise of meat consumption, there's a rise in heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and obesity. And there certainly could be other contributing factors, but studies are kind of pointing out that it does seem like this, you know, desire to get all this protein is leading to these things. And we really only need about 10% of our daily calories to be protein. Um, And we're going to get into more of that, like, you know, how much protein do we actually need in a little bit. So let's touch on some myths about protein. So the first myth, protein is the key to weight loss. Protein is not the key to weight loss. Animal protein um, specifically is one of the biggest contributors um, to obesity. In almost every study conducted, animal protein is correlated with weight gain. So protein is not the key to weight loss. The next myth, animal protein is the healthiest food. Animal protein is not one of the healthiest foods, nor is it needed to make a meal complete. Um, And it's, again, strongly associated with diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and cancer. Um, And I mean, I grew up thinking that you had to have, you know, some sort of meat with every meal. So it was like, you know, eggs for breakfast, that's where you got your protein. With lunch, you'd have some sort of lunch meat sandwich. Um, And dinner, it was some sort of protein, whether it was beef, chicken, or pork. And so we all are kind of, I think, thought that way. Um, And animal protein is not the healthiest food. Again, protein doesn't really protect us from disease. It's not anti-aging. And protein is also not anti-inflammatory. And again, you don't want um, inflammatory foods coming into your body because then that's going to fuel any symptoms or illnesses that are going on. The next myth is grass-fed meat is best. Um, this myth was surprising for me because, um, you know, I've, I have read a lot that grass-fed meat is best, but actually even grass-fed organic meat is a carcinogen. 
which means um, carcinogen means it contributes to the formation of cancer. Um, and also, even eggs. So even if you're getting like grass-fed, free-range eggs, um, they also um, are a carcinogen and contribute to the formation of cancer. And if you've been listening to a lot of my episodes, you know that I'm not a fan of eggs because they do tend to feed a lot of bad bacteria and viruses in the body, especially if you're dealing with a chronic um, condition or illness. Eggs are not something that you are going to want to eat. The next myth, carbs are bad. <laughs> carbs are not the enemy. Um, clean carbs are the key to long-term health and vitality and even long-term um, weight loss and keeping weight off. And we're going to talk about carbs and stuff later. Um, and here's like a little random fact. Um, it's not really a myth, but it's a random fact. Is the chemicals in cheese, so a lot of people have a, like they'll give up dairy, but they won't be able to give up cheese. The chemicals in cheese are call, um, called casomorphins. These, these chemicals mimic the effects of real morphine in our brains and bodies. This is why it's so hard to give up cheese and why cheese cravings are so intense. And I hear this all the time from clients that they'll have these intense cravings for cheese as they're starting to, you know, bring things out of their diet. And it's not surprising because cheese is so addicting and it's because of those casomorphins. And it's really fascinating that it has the same effect as morphine on our brain and body. So then that means too, when you do get cheese, it has this effect on the brain. Like, you know, you're finally getting that satisfaction you've been waiting for um so that said be aware if if you know if you're are if you are trying to avoid dairy for whatever health reasons um you know definitely avoid cheese in addition to that and just know this is why it's so hard to give it up so let's talk about pro protein research because what i hear a lot from people who follow the carnivore diet or keto or paleo is all these things about various studies and i just laugh at a lot of them um and so let's let's talk about it all pro protein studies are really short so they don't last for very long they follow um their they follow their participants for days or weeks never really longer than one year and again the long-term studies are going to be the best ones to show you what's great in the long term because we could look at something and be like, oh, that has a short-term solution. But when it comes to our health, are we really looking for a short-term solution or are we looking for something long-term? We don't want to be constantly having to switch our diet up because, again, it's not working after a while. We want something that's long-term that we don't have to stress about all the time. And so with, with pro-protein studies, they don't know any long-term effects. And a lot of pro-protein studies, they, they look at um, biomarkers instead of credible health outcomes. And so some examples of what a biomarker would be is looking at like blood pressure or LDL cholesterol, which you may be thinking like, okay, well, aren't those good markers? But these are inexpensive markers to look at and they're very easy to measure. And you can look at many biomarkers in a study and just pick the ones that show improvement. So they're maybe gonna just show a couple biomarkers, but they're not giving you all of them. And maybe the other ones were negative and a couple were positive. And even in a lot of pro-protein studies, the participants end up giving up a lot of junk food and processed food, and then they are eating meat or other forms of protein. And it's, it's important to realize that anytime you cut out junk food and processed food, yeah, your blood pressure is gonna get better. Your cholesterol is going to get better for a period of time. 
And then if you are relying on heavy protein sources for nutrition, then that will eventually start to reverse and go back to the way it was. But it could look good in the short term that, oh, look, this is doing something when that's not actually the case. You really want studies to take into account vitality and quality of life. These are important, important factors and they should be looked at. And a lot of protein studies don't look at that. Pro-protein studies, they also use a very small sample size of just a few people. They hardly reflect um, the large population. So the bigger, the more participants in a study, the better. The smaller, the not so great. It's hard to say that that would be an accurate representation of a population. And then other studies um, that don't use people, they will take data from animal research or test tube experiments. And this is also hard because you really want to see what something's doing in the human body. Um, a, a test tube is very controlled. Um, again, you can't tell long-term effects in a test tube. And then even with animal studies, many animals, not all of them, but many of them, they have very different digestive processes than us, um, and they therefore can tolerate totally different types of diets. Um, so unless you're looking at maybe like chimpanzees, apes, you know, that would be more accurate. But like thinking about like cats and dogs, they have very different digestive tracts than us. Dogs have very short intestinal tracts. That's why they can eat a, a very high protein diet and they don't have to worry about certain bacterias and things like that. So, you know, animal studies are a great preliminary thing, but you really want to eventually see studies being done on, on people. And you also want to see studies be carried out for a year, if not longer. Longer is always better. So like recently with all of the clinical trials for the vaccine and everything, they weren't very long. And so a lot of people were, you know, kind of pointing this out, like, you know, the standard for all studies or even to say a study is credible is the longer it's conducted, the better. And that goes especially, you know, with with nutrition. There's also something called publication bias, which means that certain findings are much more likely to get published than others. And the food industry, they can afford to get their information published and out to a big audience, much more than say like honest nutritional scientists who are just working hard in their labs trying to you know, actually find some interesting finding and maybe then it's harder for them to get published. And, and again, this goes with tons of health research that it's very hard sometimes to get findings published because again, publication bias. Like think about food additives. When you have the food industry that has so much money, of course it's gonna be difficult for studies about um, natural flavors to get published. And I've been vocal about natural flavors in other episodes and on social media posts as well. That natural flavors is just another name for MSG um, and the ingredients in natural flavors is like 200 to like 400 different ingredients that make up that natural flavor. And so if they actually listed all the ingredients on the label of what was in natural flavors, every ingredients label would be pages long. Um, and so, you know, we know it causes inflammation, especially in the brain. and it's hard to get studies like that published. So that's something to keep in mind, publication bias, and that sometimes, you know, certain findings don't get published. It's much harder. You have to jump through more obstacles. So protein truths. So insulin. Protein-rich foods produce a disproportionately higher insulin response than things like fruit. People love to point fingers at fruit, saying, oh, you know, it's going to cause spikes in insulin. It's going to cause blood sugar issues. Diabetics can't eat fruit. 
This is not true, especially when protein-rich foods are going to produce a higher insulin spike. So basically, a protein meal, it might not raise your blood sugar, but it substantially increases insulin more than eating fruit does. And everybody gets scared of eating too much fruit, and it's just funny to me. Beef raises insulin more than bananas. Insulin resistance is due to fat toxicity in um, muscle cells. Uh, Meat consumption is a major cause of diabetes. Carbs are not. Clean carbs. I don't mean any kind of carb. You want clean carbs. A study followed thousands of people for 12 years. So again, you have a big sample size, thousands of people, and you have a long study, 12 years, and found that meat, especially processed meat, like bacon, deli meats, and sausage, is associated with the development of type 2 diabetes. So I can't tell you how many people will say, well, I can't eat fruit because I have diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is a little bit different, um, though there are ways that you can eat fruit, but that's kind of a different conversation. But with type 2 diabetes, protein is not necessarily going to be your best friend. Fruits are associated with decrease in um, diabetes development. So eating more food decreases diabetes um, complications and it developing. So even if you're pre-diabetic, that's a great time to switch to more fruits and lowering your protein intake. High protein diets do less for weight loss over time. And why is that? The weight loss is coming from water. So this is something. People will switch to um, a high protein diet and they lose all this weight, right? So they think it's effective. But that weight loss is coming from water. And slowly but surely, the more protein you eat, the more dehydrated you become because you're losing all this water. So your body is starting to become dehydrated. And again, being chronically dehydrated is not a good thing. I have a whole podcast episode about chronic dehydration. So that's something to check out on the effects of that. So when you eat high protein, you most likely are not eating enough clean quality glucose, aka carbs. I much would rather refer to carbs as clean quality glucose um, because our body needs glucose. Our body needs glucose, so when we don't get enough, the body pulls stored glycogen out of the liver to get glucose to our cells, our organs, and most importantly to our brain. Glycogen is stored with water. So as your body is using up stored glycogen, you also lose the water, making it seem like you're losing weight, but it won't be weight that you keep off. And and you're not even losing body fat. You're just, again, you're losing water. And this is further why I don't like viewing nutrients as macronutrients. There's so much more our bodies do with carbs um, and protein than we think. It's not all about protein. And if we focused on eating more fresh whole foods to hydrate our cells and our organs on a deeper level, we would be healthier overall and able to lose that excess body fat that we're trying to lose. Which again, isn't that everyone's goal? You wanna lose excess body fat? Like we don't really wanna lose water weight. Again, we, we want our bodies to stay hydrated. We need that to be healthy. So the best evidence for sustainable lasting weight loss comes from a diet high in fruits and vegetables and low in fat. And I also talk a lot about watching your fat intake. So if you go back and listen to other episodes, probably any episode I've ever talked about, I point out eating low fat is important. And so again, that is the best best evidence for sustainable lasting weight loss. Lots of fruits and vegetables and low fat. Another truth or reality about protein 
Randomized controlled trials show that meat causes the formation of N-nitroso compounds in the body and um, cause colon cancer. So nitrates that are found in vegetables, they need heme iron to become dangerous, and heme iron is only found in animal protein. So in order for the nitrates in vegetables to convert to the dangerous N-nitroso compound, they need heme iron that's only found in animal protein. So eating just vegetables, not a problem. The nitrates in vegetables cause no issue in people. So vegetables alone are not an issue when it comes to nitrates. Vegetables and meat, that's an issue. You can only get heme iron from animal protein, and heme iron is not the good kind of iron that we want. You can get iron from lots of vegetables. We don't want heme iron. Heme iron, it causes oxidation. So what is oxidation? Oxidation is aging. Thinking, think about something outside that oxidizes, like metal. Metal oxidizes, and that's like when it rusts. Um, so oxidation in people, in humans, is aging. And heme iron is also directly associated with the development of heart disease. One reason that vegans live longer um, is lack of heme iron in their cells. Eating lots of meat and protein in general increases inflammation, which worsens any health condition or symptom. I kind of mentioned this a bit ago. Meat causes inflammation and protein sources cause inflammation. Um, and this causes fat deposition in muscles. Fat in muscle cells lead to insulin resistance and eventually diabetes. A study found that the more carbs you eat, the less inflammation you have, and even the less risk for diabetes you have. Um, autopsies um, have shown that kids as young as 12 already show the beginnings of heart disease, which is really kind of sad. Um, and it's been well established that children who eat more animal protein are at a higher risk of developing premature puberty. Why is this? This is because so much meat today has growth hormone in it. Um, and a lot of these growth hormones, they mimic estrogen in the body. And so especially with girls, we're seeing this premature puberty. Girls starting their periods at 8, 10 years old, that's too young to start a period. And so these growth hormones are really having um, a detrimental impact on, on kids, especially at, around the age of puberty. And there's a study too that talks about how you know the reason why we we seem to think teenagers look so much older these days is because of this growth hormone in the meats that everyone's eating and so it's really having an impact on development now we're going to talk a little about the origins of the human diet because this is a big argument um a lot of times people will say oh well we're, you know we're meant to eat meat the you know this is what the caveman ate uh so yeah we let's talk a little bit about that so you have some background Traditional societies typically incorporated little meat into their diet. Groups like the Inuit, the Maasai, the tribe of the Kenyans had very poor life expectancy. And, and paleo, the paleo diet really brags about these specific societies, but their life expectancy wasn't that great, so there's really nothing to brag about. The paleo diets, so I'm going to talk about the paleo diet a little bit. Um, this is essentially just a revamped version of the Atkins diet. There's really nothing too original about it, um, which means that the research shows um, it puts you at higher risk for heart complications um, and no long-term weight loss. Um, that's The Atkins diet is notorious now for being known to cause heart complications and, again, no long-term weight loss. 
Uh, Lauren Cordain is the founder of the paleo diet, and she, she may have a PhD, but she doesn't have a PhD in anthropology. And for someone to truly know what caveman ate, you'd have to have a background in anthropology. Otherwise, you're really just speculating. Cavemen actually just ate what was available or else they'd starve. Food decisions were pretty much only made on a survival basis. If you want to follow like a paleo diet, there's really no one way. Diets of caveman varied from region to region and by the season as well. So kind of dependent on what part of the globe that you were living. And people living way back then, they would, t- they would thrive in more tropical climates. And why? Because there was an abundance of food in tropical climates. And what was the food that was abundant? Fruit. It takes a lot of energy to hunt down an animal and kill it, which is why meat was not something cavemen would eat every day. What would be easier to eat every day? Fruit. You just pick it from the tree or whatever plant it's growing on. Um, To hunt and kill an animal takes a lot of energy and effort. And so that was something that was consumed much more rare. According to forensic anthropologist, much of what the paleo diet believes about the origin of our diet is completely false. Also, the paleo diet says that um, legumes are poisonous when that was like a huge staple. Um of you know our ancestors most of the paleolithic diet was plant-based and it was gathered by the women a two million year old hominid fossil from south america was examined to see what may have been eaten that long ago food matter that was fossilized in the teeth showed that the diet appeared to be mainly tree leaves bark and fruits and no matter what region of the world you're looking at this appears to be true in other, region, in other regions, it appears that legumes were also consumed. And like I just said, that's kind of ironic since the paleo diet doesn't eat legumes, yet they have found in fossils that legumes were eaten. So why that kind of started, I have no idea. A professor of anthropology who studies in depth diet and ancient man found that our genes evolved to eat starch and that they may have been the game changer to our evolution and brain development that elevated us from chimps, um, which I think is kind of fascinating that, you know, it was uh, legumes, which are a starch, um, did that. So, so legumes, things like uh, sweet potatoes, stuff like that. Civilizations like the Incas, the Aztecs, the Middle East, the Far East, and even civilizations in Africa, they're not, they didn't follow meat-based diets, um, and it's not meat that helped them thrive. It's the starches, the fruits, the leaves, and the tree barks that helped them thrive. And we, we really don't know of any culture that ate predominantly animal protein and thrived. The few cultures that we know, they didn't thrive. They, they lived very short lives. So when people try to have the argument that, oh, well, cavemen, they ate mostly meat and I'm just eating what our body's designed to eat, that's not totally fact-based. Now we're going to talk about fat and protein. So in my last episode about protein, you probably remember me talking about how a high-protein diet is also a high-fat diet. And this is because every protein source is also a fat or contains fat. So every meat contains fat. Even with plant-based protein sources, they're also a fat. So nuts, they um, have protein, but they're also fats. Seeds, same thing. 
beans, same thing. Though beans are a starch, so then they're kind of treated a little differently, but you get the gist. And so we often think that healthy fats, aka saturated fats, they're fine to eat in any amount because they're healthy fats, so it doesn't really matter. We don't have to monitor how much of them we're eating. And especially, and then if you're keto, you eat mostly fats, like that is the bulk of your diet. And there's thousands of articles and studies showing that saturated fat is harmful to the heart. And why more people don't talk about this, I don't know. Um, but there's lots of evidence showing that too, too much saturated fat is harmful to our heart. And remember how I was saying that fats make our blood thick. And when our blood is, is thick, it has less oxygen, which results in our heart having to work harder to pump that thick blood and poorly oxygenated blood throughout our body. And so it's no wonder that, yeah, this is why you're going to have heart issues because you have thick blood because of all the fat in your diet. There's 25 years of data about saturated fat and heart disease, and yet still people will want to follow a keto diet or just eat high fats. So being aware of your fat intake is important to your overall long-term health. Eating a high-fat diet is de especially detrimental if you're battling some sort of chronic illness, autoimmune disease, um, and have other symptoms. Um, so different things that would be affected by high-fat diet would be migraines, Hashimoto's, lupus, fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, eczema, chronic fatigue, UTIs, cystic acne, diabetes, autism, toxic heavy metal buildup and other, any other toxin that may be in your body. So limiting your fat to a small portion of your diet is really important, again, especially if you're dealing with a health issue. And studies have found that if you eat more fruit, your heart will thank you. So more fruit is better for your heart. I bet that's not something you've heard before because <laughs> fruit is certainly not talked about in that way. So let's talk about a better approach. Like all this is been a little negative let's kind of talk about some positive so a better approach would be having a low protein and low fat diet and that's the most effective way to improve your long-term health so essentially a high carb diet which sounds like oh my gosh how dare you say a high carb diet for those that say um, that the body can use fats for fuel and just go into keto ketosis when the body switches from a uh, to a fat metabolism, this is an emergency situation. It is not meant to be a way of life. This is for if we are truly in a state of starvation and we have no food, our body will do this in order for us to survive because every cell in our body wants us to survive. But again, this is not meant to be long-term and it has its own harmful side effects when it becomes more than a short-term thing. And so this isn't really... Uh, this isn't really keto, but the carnivore diet is kind of a new uh, popular thing right now. And you have Carnivore MD on Instagram who has tons of followers. And if you look back at his history, when he kind of first started talking about a carnivore diet, he actually ended up kind of getting sick. And he came to this realization, oh, we need to add raw honey. We need to add some fruits. Why is that? Because your body was glucose starved. You were not getting glucose in all the meat you were eating. So your brain was struggling and basically you had no energy. Your body couldn't perform its functions without glucose. And so when I say basically a high carb diet, absolutely, that is what our body wants. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, 
how it's hard to eat too many carbs in the process of that. But that his arguments seem to really be enticing for people. And again, like, you know, if you want to eat meat, you can. You don't have to cut it out of your diet completely, but be more realistic in how much meat you're consuming and still try to be high carb. And so you don't have to go vegan is basically what I'm saying to avoid the issues of too much protein. You don't need to eat meat at every meal, though. And maybe having meat for one meal a day is going to be a much healthier practice for you. And the other thing is we don't even know what a proper serving of meat looks like anymore. We're used to these massive portions, but a four ounce serving size of meat is all our liver can tolerate at a time. So if you're going to have some meat for dinner, keep it four ounces. Anything bigger, you're going to start to stress out the liver and the gallbladder. And so don't think about it, if, if you're really reluctant to give up meat, don't think about it as giving up meat. Rather, think about it as increasing your fruits and vegetables all day long and then try, you know, have your meat at dinner time. And for me, and I've never liked meat. Even when I ate meat, I never liked it. It was like I forced myself to eat it because I thought I had to. But a plate of meat looks so bland and colorless. Like, it does not look appetizing or exciting. Like your eyes don't light up when you see that versus if you see a bowl of fruit or a plate of vegetables, like your eyes light up, especially with fruit. I think, you know, anytime you see a series of fruit fruit photos, I mean, that just looks pretty. You want to look at that. And then what's um, really cool is many of the effects of too much protein and animal protein um, are reversible. So, you know, if you've been eating lots of um, animal protein and protein, um, you can reverse any, you know, plaque buildup or anything in the heart. And so that's really cool. And we'll we'll talk about that. So now we're going to talk about glucose, a.k.a. carbs. Again, I like to say good quality glucose instead of carbs, because, again, so, so many people have issues with the word carbs and they're afraid when they hear carbs. So I like to say glucose. There's never been a single credible study showing that fruit consumption leads to weight gain. There's not. Also, studies show that there's no upper limit to the amount of fruit that you can eat in a single day. And we're going to talk about caloric density in a second, but it'd be really hard to eat too much fruit. It really would. And so if we eat excess carbs or excess good quality glucose, our, what our bodies do is they speed up our metabolism in order to use that energy. And then whatever energy is not used, it's going to be stored in the liver as glycogen. And that's a good thing. We want to have glycogen buildup. So it's your glucose reserves, essentially what glycogen storage is, your, your extra glucose. Kind of like if you have a reserve tank of gas, that's important to have. Most of us do not have glucose reserves in our liver anymore because we don't even eat that much glucose in our daily diet. So our body has to use everything we're eating for our day-to-day -day functions. It cannot store it for later because it needs it now. So having storage is important. And our bodies have a mechanism in which to store extra glucose when we eat plenty of carbs. Say we eat excess fat, our bodies are going to store that excess fat as fat because we don't have another way to store excess fat that we eat. Our body doesn't have an efficient process for that. So it just stores it as fat cells. And then if we're eating excess protein, our body will immediately store that as fat. No conversion is necessary for that to happen. And so, our because our bodies also have no place to store excess protein. 
which shows too that our body's choice of energy is glucose slash carbs. Our body's choice of energy isn't fats or protein. If it was, it would have a way to store that for when it needs it. It has a way to store extra carbs. People who support high protein diets, they'll try to tell you that protein's more satiating, it fills you up. And if you eat a very low carb and high protein diet, your body will eventually run out of its primary energy, which is glucose. And in order to stay alive and keep everything in your body functioning, it will switch to an alternative energy source. The body will start to burn fat for fuel using ketones, which are created as a byproduct. So when I talked about ketosis a little bit ago, your body is switching to a fat metabolism. And this is not healthy nor sustainable. Again, this is a survival technique. So it's not a healthy technique. It is purely out of survival. Ketones, they make us feel sick. They make you feel nauseous. They cause abdominal pain, and it's often because of these symptoms that people start to eat less, and then they aren't being nourished properly, and then they develop health issues. And whether it occurs in the short term or the long term, it depends on the person when those feelings will set in. And clean sources of glucose like fruits, vegetables, potatoes, squashes, those truly satiate hunger, not fats, not protein. And I will say... I've talked about it a little bit, not a ton, but I did try to go keto at one point. This was before I started my master's program. I just thought it'd be fun to try. It was kind of the popular thing at the time. I was reading so much about it. And I experienced the feeling of nausea. I had stomach aches all the time. I thought it was just something wrong with me. At the time, I didn't realize this was normal and that I needed to stop what I was doing. Um, And me going keto started was what pushed me into a downward spiral of health issues and eventually landed me with Lyme disease and a bunch of other stuff. Um, And so I also know from personal experience that keto doesn't work and therefore like a carnivore diet won't work long term. Our bodies, they do everything in their power to keep us alive and healthy. That's what they want. Like I said, every cell in our body wants to keep us alive and keep us healthy. So naturally, we do have a backup plan for when we don't get enough glucose. Our bodies are built very smart, and but that's really like all it is. It's a backup plan, a plan B. It's not a replacement plan, as many people try to argue. It's in case of an emergency plan. And when people say that our bodies can switch to using ketones for fuel whenever we want to be healthier, this is just not true. Again, using ketones for, ketones for fuel or being in ketosis is an emergency plan in case of emergency. Um, you know, like uh, you see those things in case of emergency, break glass. Basically, that is what um, ketosis is. Data from the National Center for Health Statistics shared um, some information about American eating patterns. And the data showed that between 1998 and 2008, the total calorie, the average total calorie intake amongst Americans was stable. So people seemed to be intaking the same amount of food, but that they saw that carb intake decreased and protein intake increased. And at the same time, obesity rates were increasing significantly in adults and adolescents. So that is kind of an interesting finding. I think, you know, our calorie intake was the same, but we started eating less carbs because around that time, You know, carbs were getting a bad name and we were eating more protein and then obesity rates started to rise significantly. 
And, and more data is also pointing to the same thing, that the more protein people seem to eat, the more weight they end up gaining, which further shows that carbs are not the problem. So let's talk a little bit about calorie density. Um, and there's a great chart. You could just Google calorie density chart and you'll see a bunch of different ones, but you'll get the gist of it. So basically you have a picture of our what our stomach looks like and um, then you have a picture of what 400 calories of oil in the stomach looks like, 400 calories of meat in the stomach, and 400 calories of fruits and vegetables in the stomach. So the oil fills up like an eighth of the stomach, very little, and that's 400 calories. And then meat fills up like a third of the stomach. And then fruits and vegetables in 400 calories fills up the stomach completely. So when people try to argue that protein satiates hunger or meat will satiate hunger, it just won't because it it won't fill up our stomach. It's very calorie dense. So it's, you know, you don't eat that much and here you've had all these calories. And the thing with filling our stomach up is that sends a signal to our brain. Hey, you're full. You've had enough. We're good to go. So fruits and vegetables do that. They stretch our stomach to send that signal to the brain. And that's why it's really hard to overeat fruits and vegetables because our brain is going to know we're full and we're not going to want to eat anymore versus when it comes to oils and meats that's or protein sources and fats that's totally different um so envision that next time you're like worried that you're not going to be able to fill up on fruits and vegetables a 2013 meta-analysis of four low-carb studies looked at 272,000 people for a year or longer. So some people were looked at either for a minimum of a year and then longer. And they counted 16,000 deaths among those people. And those who had the lowest carb intake, they had an increased chance of dying early. So again, more evidence showing that low carb does not help with long-term health. You want high carb. So let's talk about how much protein do we actually need. So the USDA and the CDC, which again, skeptical of their guidelines, but let's just go off of that for the sake of argument. The USDA recommends 56 grams daily for men and 46 grams daily for women. And this is actually a generous amount, but we'll, we'll go with it. The longest living people on the planet get about 6% of their daily calories from protein, and many studies recommend 10% of our daily calories from protein. So the exact number in grams will vary a little from person to person. So um, the other day I decided to input all of my food intake into a food tracker app. I use MyFitnessPal. That's just that's what I had on my phone when I used to track my calories. I don't anymore. But I had never... I never really tracked them. I just, I knew I was getting enough protein, but I wasn't, I hadn't been concerned about it. But since I was getting so much backlash about there's just no way you could have enough protein on the kind of diet that you're following. Because again, I'm not actively seeking out protein. I'm just eating whole foods, eating healthy foods and eating till I'm full. So I don't, again, I don't think about protein. A lot of people spend every day thinking about, oh my gosh, am I getting enough protein? I don't think about that. But I thought, you know what? Let me just input it all. Let me see. Let me share the results so that people can see like I'm I'm getting enough. So my I set the app to 10% daily, um, 10% of my calories to be from protein. And so my 
my goal in grams was to get 46 grams of protein. That was my goal, which, okay, that is goes towards the guidelines. So then 10% is that 46 grams if you wanted to follow the CDC and USDA guidelines. My total grams that I got that day was 55 grams of protein. So I exceeded that. I exceeded that goal. It was a little strange because when I went to like the macros, it told me that I only had 8% of my daily calories were from protein that day, even though I exceeded the grams goal. So I'm not really sure like what happened with the algorithm there. But either way, if we want to take that 8%, okay, it's between 6 and 10%. So it's in, it's in range. Um, and then if you want to look at the grams, my grams were over what was recommended. So the moral of the story is it's not that hard to get all the protein we need. For some reason, we think it's so difficult. But again, if you're eating enough food, you're going to get enough protein. It's really that simple. We don't need to overcomplicate it. And really, too, it's not even protein that we need. It's amino acids. Sometimes we think it's, you know, protein, but we just need amino acids. That's what um, that's what our muscles need. That's what our bodies need. And we can get amino acids from fruits and vegetables, not just protein sources. So that's something to remember. Amino acids, glucose, and mineral salts. Those are the building blocks to maintain muscle. We don't need protein specifically. We just need foods that provide those things. So fruits and vegetables, they have those things. So you don't have to get protein-specific foods to maintain or build muscle if that's something that you're looking to do. And sugar that is naturally derived, so natural sugar that's found in fruits and even found in things like potatoes, sweet potatoes, and winter squashes, those really help build muscle. And fat stops you from building muscle. And it's funny because, again, protein sources also contain fat. And if you're eating lots of protein, you're eating lots of fat, and then that's going to stop you from building muscle. And it's funny because a lot of people will say, oh, well, if you look at like fruitarian or vegans um, or raw vegans, all of their muscles are really underdeveloped. So you know they're just not getting adequate protein. Like, okay, they have muscle, but it's not like the proper kind of muscle. And something I think about a lot is, do we even know what proper muscle is supposed to look like? Like, if you think about, like, let's take the extreme. Let's take bodybuilders, right? They're eating tons of protein, which there's also a funny ju juxtaposition about that. You have people guzzling protein shakes and stuff to try to lose weight, and then you have bodybuilders you know, stuffing their faces with protein to gain weight. Like, it's very funny, like, that it's the same, I don't know, it's very interesting to me. And so, you know, I think about bodybuilders, and I'm like, well, they must have a lot of fat deposit in their muscle. If they're eating so much protein and their body doesn't even know what to do with it, like, sure, they're working out, but they're not working out hard like a professional athlete or something. I'm like, they must have lots of fat deposits in their muscle, as I kind of talked about in some of the other evidence. So... If that's what muscles look like with fat deposits in it, the big bulky muscles, then we don't then the, then we don't have the right standard for what muscles supposed to look like. Then that must mean that fruitarians, raw vegans and vegans, their muscles have no fat deposit and that's what a proper muscle development is supposed to look like. So that's something to think about. And again, I've seen I've seen people with, you know, who are very thin, who have muscle and people who then are able to bulk up on those kinds of diets. You just have to go out and look. And if you're not familiar with, most people are familiar with vegan, but if you're not familiar with fruitarians or raw vegans, search some profiles on Instagram and, and familiarize yourself with some people who follow those diets. Everyone looks very healthy. Um, and 
not everyone wants to be athletic, but those that do, they are. So it's just nice to expand your horizon. And so, like I said, if you if you're interested in maintaining muscle definition or building lean muscle, eating enough fruits, leafy greens and vegetables, um, and even drinking like green juices that have natural mineral salts and higher concentrations of them, that will really help um, your muscles. It helps prevent them from atrophying, atrophying and helps remove toxins from the muscles as well, um, which if you have toxins in your muscles, it prevents them from expanding and getting stronger. So you don't want toxic buildup in your muscle and green juices will help with that. Um, and that's because basically all vegetables contain mineral salts, which is naturally occurring sodium in vegetables. And something that I talked about on social media, which someone was confused by, was that I said that fruit can help you lose weight and also gain weight. And kind of similar, I guess, to the bodybuilding thing. But what I mean by that, though, is fruit helps to balance out our weight. And if I'm constantly saying fruit helps balance weight, it may not quite make the connection in people's brain versus if you say, oh, fruit helps you lose weight, that's going to like be like, oh, it helps you lose weight. Okay. Um, so a lot of word choices kind of matter sometimes. But really, the, the most accurate way to put it is fruit balances our weight. I've had clients who were underweight and were really needing to get their weight up. And so they increased their fruit intake and they were able to, to gain weight and get their weight to a healthy place, which that's what fruit does. It helps your weight balance out to where it should be for a healthy body. So if you're overweight, fruit will help you shed some of that. Um, and then, you know, I've said that fruit will help you gain muscle. Fruit won't, won't help you build muscle if you're just sitting around eating fruit. You have to actually actively work the muscle to build muscle. But if you're going to work your muscles, you want to support them with proper nutrition. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to have as great of recovery. You're not going to get as strong, that kind of thing. Fruit, don't fruit doesn't inherently build muscle. That's something to point out. You have to build the muscle on your own, but you're supporting the growth of the muscle through your nutrition. And then if you drink protein shakes every day, the hidden ingredients in those shakes that are actually responsible for your muscle mass, it's the sugars and the carbohydrates, not the protein at all. Um, and again, they have so many additives like MSG and processed stuff they're not even worth having have like a banana have a bunch of bananas one of my clients is a professional athlete um, currently and he was already kind of following a very fruit-based diet before seeing me but the thing is is the quantity of what you're eating is going to drastically change we don't think about that so what their meals looked like was like 12 peaches 10 bananas like it's going to be a much higher quantity of food than you know one banana you know maybe me i'm smaller i'm also not a professional athlete okay i can get away with two bananas after working out or before a workout but if you're like really working hard and you're training really hard then yeah you need to increase however many bananas or whatever fruit you're eating and increase it until you're feeling full and satisfied so that may take some trial and error um because most protein shakes are not great. There's some that are clean and have like, you know, one ingredient and that's great, but for the most part, they're, they're not the best. A study in 2009 found that those that eat plant-based or vegan diets, they eat more probiotics and prebiotics. And so if you don't know what those are, I do have episodes about gut health and stuff, but probiotics are 
basically the good bacteria living in our gut and then the prebiotics are the things that feed the good bacteria in our gut. So those that eat a plant-based or vegan diet, they eat a lot more probiotics and prebiotics. And as a result of that, their gut flora is better at being able to make new proteins. So in other words, our body can make proteins from the food we eat if we're eating the right food which I think is really fascinating. So even if some of the food that you're eating as a fruitarian or raw vegan or vegan, maybe it doesn't have all that much protein in it, but I think what's cool is that our gut flora can make proteins out of all the stuff that we're eating from the pre and probiotics. Um, I, that was like something that I thought was, was super cool. And um, so therefore it's possible for people that don't really try hard to get a high protein intake um, to produce all the protein that their body needs efficiently through um, a process called colonic reabsorption. So that's what the process is called, colonic reabsorption, where our body can kind of um, efficiently produce the protein that it needs. And it's even been found that our gut bacteria can make essential amino acids. So these are the ones that we're supposedly only able to get from food. And so given that our gut bacteria can do that, it's pretty cool. And then it recirculates those amino acids into our system, which I think is awesome. So again, if you're supporting your body with proper nutrition, it's incredible to see what it's capable of. And for those that just want to flood their bodies with all this protein, do keep in mind that there's a limit on how much protein that our bodies can actually use. So like I said before, if you're eating excess protein, our body doesn't have anywhere to put that extra protein, so it's going to store it as fat. And so a study wanted to find out when more protein no longer means better. And the study steadily increased protein in the form of amino acids. It's a bit more complicated than that, but like it basically kept increasing amino acids to see what would happen. And it found that after some time of increasing protein, mu muscle synthesis decreased. So what that means is that there is a point where more protein in your diet no longer means more muscle, but rather it means you know, more disease, illness, and weight gain. So in conclusion, after all of that information heavy stuff, no culture in human history has truly thrived on a high protein slash meat-based diet. And the anthropology of past and present civilizations show that starches, vegetables, fruits, and beans allow humans to flourish. And be, don't be afraid of a high-carb diet. And the thing is, is you've probably never tried a high-carb diet from the right clean glucose sources um and it's pretty crazy like the benefits that you will notice um and the energy that you'll get and don't be worried about not getting enough protein you will get enough protein though you know it does creep in because we are so taught to think about it that i have i will have clients who even get worried and they'll question like you're sure i'm getting enough protein and i'm like i'm sure and i'll say if you're worried about it go ahead and you know track it for a week or two and just see where where your markers are hitting and as long as they're you know in range then you're good to go and and that's not to say that maybe one day you'll be you know under by a couple grams or something maybe you didn't eat as much one day but that's also normal for everybody if you had a busy day and you noticed that you you know didn't eat as much as you normally do but Checking in and tracking it here and there is always good just to make sure you're in the right place. 
Um, but it's easy to creep in. So you kind of have to know to tune out all of that mainstream nutrition stuff and know that, okay, that's not all true. High carb is fine, especially when it's clean carbs and especially when it's fruit. Fruit has so many micronutrients, all the little stuff. We often overlook micronutrients because everything's all about macros and you want to make sure you get your macros. And it's like, yeah, those are important, but those, you know, we need to look at the little tiny nutrients because all of that has so many major impacts on our health and you know just as though just as you know you'd feel not great not getting enough protein you also wouldn't feel great if you weren't getting enough potassium or you weren't getting enough b12 or you're not getting enough iron so just because you know you're getting enough protein if you're not getting enough of those other things you're going to feel sick too which anyone who's been low in iron know that you feel pretty tired so you know, it's not just being low in protein that has um, impacts on our health. And again, not getting enough protein is very, very difficult. So remind yourself that it's hard not to get um, enough protein. And if you're eating enough, you're getting enough protein. And also remember that you can reverse heart disease by relying on fruits and vegetables for 90% of your diet or, you know, switching to entirely plant-based. But if you're not wanting to be entirely plant-based and you, you know, you want to keep meat in, you know, work on scaling back, trying to have it one meal out of the day, or, you know, maybe have it a few times a week, see what feels good to your body. Um, but just know that we don't need to have meat with every meal. We don't need to have a protein specific source with every meal and that protein and fat sources are not gonna satiate hunger, they're not gonna fill us up, they're not gonna provide energy. We need that from good, clean carbs or good quality glucose. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned a lot today, and if you are wanting support on switching to a higher carb diet and lowering your fat and protein intake, and you feel intimidated and you need support, I would love to work with you one-on-one feel free to reach out and send me an email at tdnutritioncoaching at gmail.com. 